And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, May 8th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Postal Service just can't buy any new delivery vehicles. Oh, no, 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 no. Plus, it's time to celebrate some of the government's best and brightest. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, after years of alleged discrimination at Customs and Border Protection, a group of employees has reached the next step in a lawsuit against the agency. CBP officers and agricultural staff members say they were involuntarily put on temporary light duty after telling their supervisors they were pregnant. The plaintiffs say this violates a law from the 1970s, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman heard more from Gilbert Employment Law Attorney and appointed co-counsel for the CBP case, Corey Cohen. The Pregnancy Discrimination Act was created to ensure that pregnant women are not treated differently than other other employees. And part of that and part of the reason for the law is to protect against stereotypes and preconceived notions about what pregnant women can and can't do. The courts have been really clear on this, that an employer can't substitute its own judgment about what a pregnant employee should do. The Pregnancy Discrimination Act, it's been around for decades, since 1978, and it seems like it's pretty clear in what the law actually entails. But can you explain more specifically how this really applies in this case for Customs and Border Protection employees? What are the employees alleging that the agency has in its policy here that's actually discriminatory? What we've found is that that appears to be exactly what the agency you know, policy is doing here, is saying because you're pregnant and just because a woman is pregnant, this applies to agricultural specialists and officers, they automatically, without regard to what their job is or, you know, what their ability is or the, the specific circumstances of their pregnancy, they automatically must be placed into a light duty position. And so that's sort of how the case came to be. And we've spoken to women across various field offices who are having similar um, and are the same experiences. From reading the case, I understand that this impacted, you know, hundreds of CBP employees. There was an estimated 515 employees who were put on light duty status as a result of telling their supervisors they were pregnant. Can you tell me more about the difference between standard or normal work at CBP and what it means to be on light duty status? There are a lot of different types of positions that agricultural specialists or officers can work in. A lot of them are very highly skilled. These women have been working for many years to develop specific skill sets to be officers or agricultural specialists, and they can look, the positions can look really different. You could be conducting training, you could be doing, you know, sort of more investigatory work. And that's one of the problems here is that the policy doesn't look at the specific duties that each woman is doing. There's no individualized assessment of what the duties are. So they're being placed into oftentimes new positions that they have no experience with. They're 
they're not using these skills that they've developed and they're not positions that they want to be in or are, have any experience with. We've heard a lot of women who are going from, you know, very highly skilled positions to going to other types of, of just positions that they have no experience with. And as you said, one factor of being placed on temporary light duty means that these employees are being put into positions, at least temporarily, for you know roles that they don't have any experience with. But other than that, are there specific factors about temporary light duty status at the Customs and Border Protection that can impact, for example, federal employee uh, benefits or pay? They often are losing benefits like overtime or pay differential for weekends and evening shifts, light duty. We've heard across the board from women who are immediately having their uh, weapons revoked when they're placed into light duty positions, again, without regard to their abilities. And this case is something that has been going on since 2016. So it's been, you know, seven years since the case started. But now the latest step here is that the employees have won class certification. Can you explain more what that will mean for the case going forward? Class certification means that now the, the claim can proceed on behalf of the class. The If the agency does not appeal the decision, it will move forward to a merits phase. So what are the next steps here for Customs and Border Protection? If they were going to appeal, how long would they have to make that decision? Their deadline to appeal is May 31st. And as someone who's not a legal expert, how common is it for this type of case to arise? And is it typical in similar types of discrimination cases for it to take so many years to get to this point? It's hard to say because every case is different. You know, unfortunately, the legal process can be lengthy. COVID doesn't, didn't help anything. Every case is just is really different, so it's hard to to say. And again, this has been going on for several years. Is there anything you can tell me about the reaction of some of the employees who have been involved in this case for a number of years? When they heard about class certification, you know, what does that really mean for them? I think it's really important for our clients to see hopefully positive change come from this. They're kind of leading the way for women in their field and uh, hoping that in the future, positive changes come from them standing up and using their voices. And of course, you've been involved with this case for a number of years. You're appointed co-counsel for this class of employees at CBP. Tell me what you're hoping to get out of this case and what are you hoping might change for the agency moving forward? I think this is a continuing conversation in all employment. I think pregnancy discrimination and even and just like assessing what are long held, you know, societal beliefs about pregnant women and what they should and shouldn't be doing. I hope that this is just part of the conversation, um, reevaluating that and moving the culture and policies forward so that pregnant women are not held back or stereotyped or facing bias um, in the workplace. And I think that this, this is an important step in that direction. Any final thoughts here on this case reaching the next step in the process? I really want to say that I think it was very 
brave of our clients to come forward and to raise this because it's certainly not an easy thing to speak out about. And then to have hopefully such a a wide impact, I, I just really commend them. Corey Cohen, partner at Gilbert Employment Law and appointed co-counsel for the Customs and Border Protection class of employees. She's speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, it's time to celebrate some of the government's best and brightest. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Each year, we turn to celebrate some of the most capable and accomplished career federal civil servants, finalists for Service to America medals, known as the Sammies. Well, it's that time of year again. This is a signature program of the Partnership for Public Service, whose president and CEO, Max Steyer, joins me now. Max, good to have you back. It's great to be here. Thank you. And, you know, every year the Sammies do manage to inspire because, you know, out of a workforce of a couple of million, there are really some amazing people. And so there's never a shortage of candidates. This year, just give us a sense of the breadth of the nominations, where they came from, and what did it look like? So you're right. There is no shortage of amazing stories. You have two million people and you have the responsibility of our federal government to handle the full range of challenges that we face as a country. So you have everything this year from things that are top of news, like the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or you know major investments that we're making, the bipartisan infrastructure law actually requires then enormous amounts of implementation that the people at Department of Transportation and elsewhere are actually implementing. So you cover issues like that, but you also cover issues that are less well understood. A wonderful couple of young federal employees who are part of the critical team that is dealing with trying to get hostages back from other countries and really incredible work that they're doing. Or long-time issues such as how NASA deals with risk and understanding how to create a culture that both is able to innovate and ensure that we have safety. So the issues are broad and meaningful and all aspects of our society. And we have incredible people that we should be celebrating. Over the years, some of the ones that have impressed me that I've interviewed, and I've been covering this now for almost, well, how far do they go back? About 20 years now, right? Correct. Since you were in Union Station presenting way long time ago. But two that stand out in my mind are one was someone from the National Transportation Safety Board, now retired, who had figured out the cause of a TWA flight that burst into flames, Flight 800. And the other one was the FBI agents who many, many years later, decades later, solved and brought to justice the people involved in the Birmingham, Alabama church bombing back in the 1960s. Those people were still around and they were brought to justice. The theme there is just dogged determination and never wavering from the mission, no matter how long it takes. Yes, there are many, many, many highlights. One of the things that I find always quite remarkable is, you know, we've announced our finalists and we'll have a gale in the fall for the so-called winners. They're all amazing. And really to distinguish between the 27 that are honored here and then the six that get recognized in the fall, they're all incredible, amazing, wonderful, whatever adjective you want to use. And the American people should be grateful to have that kind of service. You know, there are a lot that stand out for me very early on the woman who started the Do Not Call Registry 
which, you know, obviously we're in a slightly different world now, but for a very long time, it meant that literally hundreds of millions of Americans could have their meals in peace without the phone ringing, you know, the gentleman who helped eradicate polio in India. Then you have people like Tony Fauci, who clearly are extraordinary heroes, but two of his colleagues that, you know, were the designers of the vaccine that has kept so many, many, many Americans safe. So it's just amazing, the breadth of accomplishment. And we need to both appreciate and invest in our government so we can deal with future problems. We're speaking with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. And for those that might be learning about this for the first time, the new generation coming in, that 9% of feds under 30, just review the history of the program Samuel Heyman's part in it, the late Samuel Heyman, and how this whole thing came to be. So we're 22 years old as an organization. This is one of the first things that we did. We also set up a coalition of universities to try to get talent into government called Call to Serve, which is now 700 universities and best places to work was pretty early on too. But we set this up. It was actually just the service to America medals, not the Samuel J. Heyman service to America medals. Uh, Sam was our founder 22 years ago. He decided that this is where he wanted to help. There are 1.5 million nonprofits out there, and we're pretty much it that does this work. They're all doing important work on policy lanes. Our view is you get the government to do better, and you actually help in all those areas that they're working on. He passed away a little over, I think, 13 years ago, and we decided as a way of honoring him that we would name the program in, in his name and the Sammies and Sam. So that obviously worked out pretty well in terms of alignment. But the concept was originally to create a program that honored federal employees as a mechanism of telling their stories to the public. And what we learned is that it actually had two very powerful purposes. The first, educating the public about what our government employees are doing. But equally important was really trying to create a recognition culture inside of government. And our understanding about how important that is has grown over the years the FEPS, the best places, looks at that question about, do you believe your good work is recognized? And it's just not high enough in the federal government. I think we believe organizations get better faster by focusing a lot of attention on what's good that can be replicated. I think it's true with kids as well. Positive reinforcement is, is more powerful than the negative. You want to identify problems, but you want to find the solutions. And those solutions are there. They're just not, they're not actually pulled up and, and communicated in a way that allows others to learn from them. And this is a rolling program because you've got to keep that feedstock coming in so anyone can nominate anyone. How does the nominations work in case people say, hey, this person here deserves this? Yeah, and thank you for raising that. The answer is that we will open up nominations for next year immediately following the announcement of the current winners. So this will be in mid-October October 17. And as you just suggested, anyone can nominate. We don't take self-nominations anymore. We've actually had some very good self-nominations, just better for our end because we do a lot of due diligence to check out. And we actually engage the former honorees in doing that due diligence since they know the government best. I will note that sometimes people are loath to nominate someone because they're like, oh, there's no way they're going to beat someone who eradicated polio in India. And my recommendation is don't worry about whether you think someone is going to win or be a finalist. Nominate someone who you just think has done an amazing job. It's a vote of confidence in them. It's meaningful to them. 
and irrespective of what happens next. And I actually have seen a lot of federal resumes that say nominated for Sammies, and it's a way of just saying thank you. So please have at it. It's really great to see the variety of stories. And we try to use those stories in other places, even beyond Sammies. Right. I think a lot of the general media that knows the politics of government, but they don't really understand the operations of government, that's helped educate them too. And I also want to draw a distinction between the Sammies and the Presidential Rank Award program. That's only open to senior executive service members, of which there are, what, 50,000 or so, roughly? Closer to 7,000 for SES. But yes, you are, you are correct on the distinction between the Rank Award, which is phenomenal and important and determined inside a government. We're doing this from the outside. And, you know, our focus is really on the concrete impact that it's had on the public, uh, someone, someone or some a team's, um, you know, work. My view is the more the better. Like there are other uh, recognition programs. We would love to see more of them. We we have, again, a deficit in, of recognition in our government. So there are other programs out there that we support but besides the distinction that the SAMIs are available to any federal employee, not just SESers, there's also the fact that you have this big program around it. You're talking to me, and you know we go to the gala, and as you know, the Federal Drive interviews as many as we can fit in between now and the awards ceremony. The Presidential Rank Award program, the White House puts out a PDF with a list of names. You have no idea what the people did or who they are, just where they work. And I think that seems like an opportunity that they could take some, let's put it this way, inspiration from how the Sammies are handled. Well, I mean, I think it's an important point that you raise. I think our government could do better in telling the stories of its achievements. And it's, you know, it can be tricky. The politics of it can be tricky. But the reality is that the public needs to hear about the great work that their federal employees are doing. And agencies, some do more in the way of investment in trying to tell those stories we need to see even more of it. In our research, one of our focuses now is the public's distrust of our government. And what we have found is that when you say federal government, people think about bickering politicians in Washington. They don't actually think about the 2 million career civil servants, 85% or so that are outside of the DC metro area. And they don't think about the people that we're honoring in SAMI. So we need to communicate those stories so the public really understands you know, who their government actually is. And the distinction between those bickering politicians and the professionals that, you know, are dedicated, you know, often for their full career uh, to serving the public. So we are keenly interested in having those stories told, and we appreciate all that you've done in getting the message out. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. It's always great to have you on. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll post this interview together with a link to this year's Sammy's finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And again, I'll be interviewing a finalist each week here on the show until the winners are announced in September. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that tick, 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 tick you hear? That's the countdown to debt ceiling doomsday. But first, the Postal Service just can't buy new delivery trucks. Oh, no, 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 no. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
For the Postal Service, acquisition of new delivery vehicles has been a long, convoluted affair, and it's not over. Although the Postal Service did the requisite environmental impact statement, it wasn't good enough for stakeholders. USPS faces lawsuits. Somehow it all has to do with gasoline versus electric. For details and what has to happen next, we turn to the Audit Director of the Postal Service Office of Inspector General, Josh Bartson. Mr. Bartson, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Tom. And what is the status here? They let a contract some time ago, I think in late 2021, for a fleet of vehicles. Some were to be electric, some were to be gasoline, as required by law for more than 50 years. They submitted an environmental impact statement. Then what happened? It's a great question, Tom. And just like a lot of things that this acquisition process is, you know, you brought up the word convoluted. It's very complex. There's no doubt about it. And there's a lot of stakeholders. And right now, as simple as I'm going to say it's going to be, the Postal Service is on the path of still purchasing new vehicles with some combination of internal combustion engines and electric vehicles. And it's one of those things, at the end of the day, the Postal Service has a massive vehicle fleet, over 235,000 vehicles, and they get old. And at some point, some of these vehicles need to be replaced. So along that process, it's not like we can snap fingers and stuff happens overnight. There is a process to it. So like you said, the Postal Service has issued the environmental impact statement. Um, they're subsequently doing a, a environmental impact statement to address some of the issues that other stakeholders have raised. But of course, some of the issues that we identified in our report as well. And who are these stakeholders that filed lawsuits and on what basis? You know what? Those parties, it's kind of up to them in terms of who's filing That's their, their ability to do so. From our perspective, we just tried to stick with the information that the Postal Service was sharing related to the acquisition process, some of the publicly available information, and then just do our work in terms of consulting with our internal general counsel. Um, we also had a contractor on this work help us out. So it was kind of a, a culmination of work from our side just to kind of assess the entire environment of which these decisions and this analysis was being made. But your recommendation that they do a supplemental EIS, environmental impact statement, is a result of issues raised by these lawsuits from external groups? And that's one of the things, I guess, from the Postal Service's perspective, they have a big delivery realignment going on, too. So it's one of those things that becomes a kind of chicken or the egg type endeavor of with the Postal Service modernizing its delivery network, you want those vehicles to kind of align with what you view that future network to be. So in terms of the reasoning for their supplemental EIS, I'm sure it happened for a lot of factors, and that may be a better question for the Postal Service to answer. Again, we think that issuance of the supplemental is a great opportunity to address some of the concerns that maybe some of these stakeholders have raised, but of course, some of the other issues that we raised up in our report. Well, and the issues you raised in your report then are what? On a procedural front, we found that the Postal Service complied with the NEPA procedural requirements in terms of content and format of the documents. But one of the things that we were saying that in an analysis as complex as this, there's always a lot of, you know, what's the right assumption? What's the right input? And when we reviewed some of the things in related to the reasonable alternatives that the Postal Service presented, the total cost of ownership analysis, and their environmental emissions analysis, those are some of the things that we think that could the inputs and the the bases and the analysis could just be refined a little bit better in that supplemental document. Because one issue with the people that would have them go all electric, they would have the whole world go all electric, is that the state of infrastructure and the state of the art of the vehicles themselves just mean that you can't have electric on certain routes. You can on some, but there are routes where they just simply wouldn't work. So is that part of the issue, the balance here of electric versus gasoline? Oh, Tom, you're absolutely correct. It's a function of two, the the type of the route, where the route is, the length of the route, 
all of those factors in and it, it, it becomes again complex as the postal service is realigning its delivery network it's not that the postal service's delivery network is this static thing these routes and 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 are always changing with new addresses new businesses closed businesses so it's one of those things that the postal service is trying to optimize their delivery network and then have some vehicle fleet that aligns with that and you're correct does that mean every car should be a BEV or every car should be internal combustion, that's probably not the right mix, right? Because you have this dynamic network. So I think the postal services approach is to have some portion of them be BEVs and have you know a portion of them be internal combustion engines and see how that kind of optimizes with their desired network realignment. We're speaking with Josh Bartson. He's audit director in the office of inspector general at the postal service. Well, then you've got some other recommendations here. Uh, there are actually more statements. It says some or all of the recommendations is not publicly available due to concerns with information protected under FOIA. Management agreed. What are we saying here? In terms of the recommendations we had, one of the big ones we had was in terms of the final EIS, the Postal Service had three alternatives that we found to be relatively narrow. We were hoping in the supplemental that they expanded on those alternatives that would be a little more technologically and economically feasible and meet the purpose and need of what you were alluding to earlier, Tom, of the, of the route they're hoping for. The other part, too, is the second recommendation dealt with the total cost of ownership analysis. And we were hoping one of the things that we had observed was the Postal Service, some of the data they used was a little outdated. Um, some of the gas and electricity price data was probably from about a year old. So one of the things that we we're hoping for in the supplemental is that they're using a little more current or regionally based data. For example, you know, differences in the price of gas in California may be different from the price in New York or the price in Texas. So just kind of factoring those kind of regional differences may help as well. The third recommendation we looked at was the environmental emissions analysis. Again, this is a very kind of technical complex area, but we're just hoping some of the refinements in that area might hopefully more fully reflect the NGDV emissions that would happen based on the distribution of internal combustion and battery electric vehicles. Right. And I guess one of the cost inputs to the whole program is building electric charging stations. You have to have that and the cost of the power to charge the cars. Is that all in this equation also? In terms of the infrastructure related to the electricity and the battery vehicles, it's a great question. And it builds on one of the comments you made earlier that this is kind of a developing network. So we actually, in the Inspector General right now, we have a project looking at some of the, the battery infrastructure and the re related technology associated with all of that. So in terms of EIS, we were looking at this more through a procurement lens and not as much as these other kind of second level analysis and infrastructure needs that are required as part of this. Right. So what is going to enable the Postal Service to actually buy new vehicles? Because at this point, the ones they need to replace are getting older and older. I mean, you see them going by your house and you say, how can that thing still be running? It's a great question, Tom. And in, in addition to that, the need of the vehicles is ever changing with the you know more packages being delivered. And I think that's one of the impetus for this next generation delivery vehicle. And it's one of those things that it's going to be the Postal Service is trying to get, what, 66,000 battery electric vehicles through 2028. They originally were kind of talking about getting, you know, upwards about 165,000 vehicles. So this isn't like people are buying, you know, it's not like a 20,000, 30,000 vehicle purchase. At some point, this could be, this is going to be over half their fleet. So it is a massive endeavor. There's no doubt about that. Right. Has anyone brought up the idea of hybrid? <laughs> because that technology is pretty mature. And it's a great question. That would that would be something in terms of the Postal Services, you know, that you may want to ask them that. And from our perspective, even something as 
simple as a battery vehicle, there's a lot of different types. There's a lot of different batteries and, and the, the network would be different. So even navigating all of those waters, the Pulse Service is doing their due diligence, you know, in terms of this fleet. And this is where maybe, again, nothing, it's very, it's just a complex endeavor and they're trying to make sure that they're doing a good job to make sure this purchase and acquisition is in line with what the optimal part of their delivery network. Josh Bartson is Audit Director in the Office of Inspector General at the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me on. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Deliver the Federal Drive to your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that tick, 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 tick you hear? That's the countdown to debt ceiling doomsday. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. With cameras whirring, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders will meet with President Biden tomorrow. Their topic, what else but the debt ceiling impasse? For more on this and other congressional matters affecting you, here's WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Does anyone have any hopes for that meeting that some sort of equilibrium can be achieved and will avoid disaster? Well, everybody's hopes are all poured into this meeting, maybe too much so, because nothing really happened over the past week other than a lot of finger pointing related to the Democrats and the Republicans about who's to blame for getting us closer and closer to this deadline, which, depending on who you listen to, could be as early as June 1st. Uh, We heard some testimony at a congressional hearing last week. It might be a little bit later, maybe June 8th, but it could also push farther into the week, uh, farther into the summer. But at any rate, all eyes, of course, are going to be on this meeting tomorrow. And really, who is going to blink first on this? Is it going to be President Biden still sticking with his position that he will not deal in any way, shape or form with cutting things just to raise the debt ceiling? Or will House uh, Speaker McCarthy stick to his guns and to all the uh, wants and needs of his conservative wing of the party that say, no, we've got to use this leverage right now to get these cuts, because if we don't, it's not going to happen. And what's surprising is the absence of the Senate minority leader, Mitchell McConnell, who is he still fully there? I mean, a fall that was pretty severe, someone his age, is he got the capacity to do this because he's been pretty self-effacing in this particular situation? Right. It's really interesting in connection with that. I, I mean, he, he seems fine after coming back from uh, having that fall a little while ago, but unlike in past years when a lot of Republicans, frankly, on the Senate side looked to McConnell and when he was majority leader as well as kind of this senator coming in on the white knight horse, you know, to come in and rescue the day that he was always calm as as the deadline approached. But this time, this past week, he made it very clear that he is not going to get involved. He said, look, we've had divided government many times before. He said, I'm not part of this right now. This is all about President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So he's really backing McCarthy and just letting him take the reins. Now, a lot of Republicans privately are a little nervous about that because, as you know, that House Republican conference can get very unwieldy and things can change pretty fast. But right now, uh, the House Speaker, he won that legislative uh, debate. They got their bill passed, even though it's really a messaging bill at this point. But it does provide leverage going into this big meeting on Tuesday. And some members have been talking about the actual effect effects for various federal agencies that this shutdown or this lapse in funding, the debt ceiling limit default would have. 
Right. And one of the biggest ones is related to veterans. Uh, Democrats have really been hammering home saying that if this legislation were to go forward or if the Republican proposals would move ahead, that effectively it would cut uh, federal funding for veterans by more than 20 percent. Now, Republicans are pushing back hard on this. And in their legislation, there's no specific numbers to say what is going to be cut. And that's, of course, a strategic decision by Republicans. But you have the head of the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, saying that this is going to lead to cuts. There's going to be uh, low services, reduced telehealth access, uh, a loss of jobs potentially. And because of that, more than 50 House Republicans signed a letter to the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, for basically pushing back on all that the Veterans Department has been saying and saying, wait a second, we're not we're not cutting anything at this point. And they're trying to say that they are not going to cut anything. This was a group led by Virginia Congresswoman Jen Kiggins, who's a Navy veteran. And they're really trying to push back on that because they know this could be a damaging political message for them. So then it's basically wait and see what happens after that meeting and whether they come out smiling or glaring at one another. Right. And I think, you know, obviously both sides are going to be posturing. Both sides are trying to say we're winning this battle one way or another. So what they're really looking for privately is a way that both of them can come out of that meeting with the smiles and say, look, I'm doing exactly what my Republican conference is doing or wants. Or on the other side, President Biden and Democrats can say, yep, we got exactly what we wanted. And uh, that's a tough line to uh, get to because there's a lot at stake here, as you know. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And then there's the issue of Senator Tommy Tuberville. He's holding up military promotions and they're starting to back up visibly over something in the military he doesn't like. Right. And this is something that is really troubling to a lot of people on Capitol Hill. Um, Senator Tuberville is frustrating both military leaders, Democratic senators, uh, a lot of staffers behind the scenes uh, with this hold on military promotions for general and flag officers. This has been going on now for about two months. Tuberville has said he will not drop his objection until the military pulls back on a defense policy it announced last year, which would provide leave time and stipends for troops and qualified family members to travel across state lines to receive abortion services. And that's his real complaint about this. Now, a lot of people on the Republican side say there's nothing wrong with him having this complaint and he should be able to issue it. But the military is really getting nervous about this because they actually have some three and four star military officers who are waiting to get uh, their final approval. And this includes someone in the uh, the head of the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, the head of the Seventh Fleet in the Pacific. You also have the next director of intelligence at the U.S. Cyber Command. And it's really unclear how this is going to be resolved. Former defense secretaries last week tried to add to some pressure that have served under Republicans and Democrats. Uh, They sent a letter basically saying that the military should not be made political pawns in this process. Yeah, so brinksmanship is happening pretty much everywhere you look these days. It is. And what is the reaction to the Hill on the return to the office, telework, new work environment? There's a lot of words for it. That guidance that came from the Office of Management and Budget, the White House, which I wrote a column, if you can understand the memo, then you might be able to help 
to start to carry it out. But that's really kind of stuck, too, isn't it? Right. And as you pointed out, I mean, there's really a lot of confusion about what the memo actually means specifically to agencies and for all these people who are trying to figure out whether or not they are going to have X amount of days teleworking or going back to the offices. Uh, and, you know, as you have noted, uh, they have tried to figure out within each of these agencies what this actually means. I mean, the memo, it seems, is trying to say we need to have something of a reset here after the pandemic and we make sure that everything is being done correctly, but also responding to what basically our customers or the people that rely on these agencies need. And it seems like every agency is trying to work its way through all of this. You know, I was struck by the Federal News Network survey that found that close to two thirds who responded said they would look for a new job if their agency decided to increase work at the office. Well, you also have a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill who uh, would like there to be a nice balance between telework and working at the office, but also a lot of, that are pushing, uh, particularly Republicans, to get people back into the office. So it's a really interesting back and forth related to this issue. And meanwhile, the Capitol Hill itself is open and there are more accessible areas thanks to the Republicans taking over the House. What's it look like these days up there? We're post-cherry blossom time. <laughs> we are post-cherry blossom time, but you would never know it. I have not seen this many people kids, big tour groups, all kinds of organizations on the Hill. I have not seen this in several years, you know, going back to uh, the pandemic, of course, and then you had all the security issues related to January 6th. And as we've talked about in the past, uh, lawmakers like to see people. They like to see their constituents coming up to the Hill. So it's been really nice to come into the Capitol every day and see all of these people, uh, not only on the outside of the Capitol, but working through the visitor center and going through the corridors. And then what's really interesting is just across the hall from me is the balcony, the visitor's balcony to the House chamber. Well, for a long time, that's been all locked off. Even when members of Congress would come up with groups, they could not actually look into the chamber. And of course, that's a big deal when you come to the Capitol. Now those doors are open. They can get groups down there to actually look at where the work is either taking place or not taking place, depending on the day. And it's really nice to see. All right, I may play tourist and show up at your door one of these days. <laughs> Absolutely. Come on up. All right, Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much, as always. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Over the last several years, Congress has passed several pieces of legislation meant to speed up the Defense Department's acquisition system. Now, DOD officials have an idea of their own. They're asking for new authorities that would let the military services get started on critical acquisition projects without lawmakers' prior approval. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, defense officials say the current approval process just takes too long and risks putting DOD at a technological disadvantage. The reforms Congress has passed since the middle of the last decade have been focused on moving technologies through DOD's acquisition bureaucracy more quickly. But none of them have dealt with the delays that come from the annual congressional budgeting and appropriations process. Defense officials say this one would. The department's proposal wouldn't apply to everything. The new authority could only be used for technologies that are needed quickly to respond to emerging threats. Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force, has been pressing the idea for years. Right now, he says that sort of rapid response is next to impossible. Our proposal would expand rapid acquisition authority so that military departments can more quickly respond to emerging threats and take advantage of evolving technology. 
Within reasonable constraints, this legislative proposal would allow progress on compelling national security needs that would otherwise be delayed until the next submission and approval of the president's budget. Kendall says he believes the new authority would shave about two years off the time it takes for the military to begin new start programs. Under the current system, he says promising new technologies are left essentially in limbo while individual proposals make their way through the DOD and congressional budgeting processes. I'm waiting right now. We spent the first year I was in office defining what we needed to do to stay ahead of the basing challenge, ahead of China. And I had to wait a year to get that into the budget, get the budget submitted. Now I'm waiting another roughly a year for, under normal circumstances, that budget to be passed. If there's a year continuing resolution, I'll wait yet another year. And that is all time that we're giving away to someone who's racing to be ahead of us technologically in field of capability. We cannot afford that time. If Congress agrees to the proposal as part of next year's defense authorization bill, DOD would be able to spend up to $300 million on a new program without getting congressional approval. Lawmakers would only be notified about a new start for one of the programs after a decision has been made. But DOD would have to meet a relatively high bar to use the authority. The Secretary of Defense would need to certify that the technology involved is urgent and simply can't wait for the next budget cycle. The department would also have to specifically identify a funding source for the new program from within its existing budget. And the authority could only be used for the earliest stages of a new program, not beyond the point of a system's preliminary design review. We will be able to do the low-cost initial stages of a program, do the system engineering, do the preliminary design work, do maybe a little risk reduction, maintain competition, make no long-term commitments, only go up to the point of preliminary design review, one of the earliest milestones. All that is relatively inexpensive, but it takes time. And then Congress would have full authority to uh, decide whether we could proceed beyond that point or not. We would probably use reprogrammings for this, and Congress would have authority over that. So there wouldn't be any real loss of the, uh, uh, the, the authorities that the Congress has over what we do, but we would gain a year and a half at least of, of, of time lead time to getting things filled in. The proposal would build on authorities Congress already added as part of this year's defense authorization bill. That provision told DOD to create new procedures to rapidly buy the capabilities it needs to deal with urgent operational needs or vital national security interests. But DOD says the existing authority only lets it buy commercial items or technologies that are already in development, not new technologies that haven't been specifically budgeted. Kendall says the department, and the Air Force in particular, needs to get on with the business of divesting old systems and investing in new ones as quickly as possible, largely because of the perceived threat from China. China is aggressively trying to field the capability to defeat our ability to project power, and they've been working on it for at least 20 years. Uh, there are long-range weapon systems targeting our airfields, our carriers, our satellites, etc., uh, are a threat that we really have to cope with. But they're also modernizing their air-to-air capability. Uh, I can't go into great details here, but they have analyzed carefully how we fight and what we fight with, and they've been thoughtful about what they need to invest in to try to circumvent that or defeat it. And that's the reason that I'm so obsessed with getting on with the next generation capabilities. Holding on to things that are becoming obsolete over time just doesn't make any sense. We've got to get to the next generation. We're moving towards modernization that will be effective against that threat, But that's a dynamic threat. It's constantly changing. It'll respond to to what we do. So we need to think very carefully about the future, what our future posture might look like, and create some options at this point. We also need to look at how we're structured. I've asked my scientific advisory board to take a look at this. The posture of the Air Force has evolved into over time 
is one that was essentially derived from the kinds of operations it was conducting, which were largely counterinsurgency with a lot of deployments overseas for people and a certain kind of tactical combat operations. That's not what our future looks like. But we've also got to look at how we're structured to do acquisition. We're not transitioning science and technology as quickly into products as we should be or as efficiently as we should be. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.